The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. The topic of this video is destroying angels, the angels sent by God to unleash destruction upon the world. Alright, let's get into it. In the Bible, there are many instances where angels are sent to carry out God's will, which means that, on certain occasions, they were the emissaries of extirpation, the ambassadors of annihilation, bringing death and destruction like an ordained cataclysm. God, in the context of the Abrahamic religions, is an entity of pure good and love. However, like a beneficent parent, it was of the gravest importance that he both punish and protect his children. Punish so that people remained on the righteous path, guided back to it in severe fashion when necessary, and protected so that the perils of the world did not extinguish the light of the faithful. In achieving this, God exercising his solemn and sacred prerogative, some of the events that transpired were startling in the extent of the death and destruction unleashed. Instances of terrible power were sometimes provoked, and the unleashing of this terrible power was often carried out by God's angels, his divine messengers. There are many extra-biblical works that expound on angels, extrapolating from scripture and discussing them in great detail. The different kinds, their hierarchy, their nature and substance, their power and their purpose. One of the most important of these works is the celestial hierarchy, a theological treatise of the 5th century attributed to Pseudo-Dionysius. It delineates the nine angelic choirs, stratifying them by their proximity to God. From the top, the nine choirs are Seraphim, Cherubim, Thrones, Dominations, Virtues, Powers, Principalities, Archangels, and lastly, Angels. You probably noticed that destroying angels isn't one of the choirs. And this non-inclusion is an omission that's consistent across all such works, whether or not they adhere to the Dionysian framework or assert variations of their own. Destroying angels aren't a category of angel in the same way that the angelic choirs are, rather than an angelic cohort that neatly fits into heaven's organization, it is a loosely defined group predicated on action more colloquialism than concrete categorization. Indeed, the phrase destroying angel is entirely absent from the Bible, though there are close approximations, such as destroyer. From here, we are going to cover three instances where angels were dispatched on the winds of wrath, sped from the halls of paradise and sent to subject the mortal plane to their terrible power, either culling God's flock for impiety or humbling the enemies of those who kept God in their hearts. The three instances are the death of the firstborn, the narrowly avoided destruction of Jerusalem, and the obliteration of the Assyrian army. 1. The Death of the Firstborn The death of the firstborn is the tenth and final plague God inflicted upon Egypt. The purpose of these ten plagues was to force compliance through pain. The Pharaoh wouldn't release the Israelites from bondage, so the ten plagues were sent to rack Egypt. 
a plague would afflict Egypt, and then Moses would come and warn the Pharaoh of what would happen if he didn't relent. Though the Israelites were certainly the aggrieved party, subjected to thraldom as they were, the dynamic between Moses and the Pharaoh, to me, is reminiscent of that between Inquisitor and a person being tortured. The plagues, like dutiful torturers, come and inflict all sorts of pain. After each session, Moses comes in and asks the Pharaoh if he's ready to talk and tell him what he knows. Pharaoh, his lucidity fading, barely conscious in excruciating delirium, spits blood in Moses' face and exclaims that he'll never talk, defiant till the end. Moses dispassionately wipes away the blood and quietly leaves each time, betraying nothing of his thoughts or emotions, for he knows the resolve of every man has its limits. Another plague is sent, and the series of events just described plays out again, rinse and repeat. Of course, Pharaoh wasn't personally being tortured, his kingdom was, and he didn't have any sensitive information, like where the rebels might be hiding, that could condemn others. All he had to do was free some slaves. Obviously, this is all facetious. Moses' mission was noble. The Israelites were a persecuted people, and the Egyptians were slave masters. In the end, Pharaoh gives in, bludgeoned to capitulation by calamitous plague after calamitous plague. But he certainly put up a good fight, sacrificing the prosperity and well-being of his people for a good long time. Egypt's gods were shown to be nothing more than impotent constructs that paled before true divinity, and the terrestrial might wielded by the pharaoh was shown to be nothing more than a flimsy twig raised tip-first against the piercing point of the celestial spear. The gods and the priests who exalted them were broken, unmasked as a paltry cult that vainly worshipped carved stone. The pharaoh was forced to relent and free the Israelites, the meagerness of his own power made apparent. It was the tenth plague that finally did it. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. Through Moses, God instructed the Israelites to smear the front door of their homes with a lamb's blood. There's more to it, but for the purpose of this video, we'll leave it at that. The households that did this, the Israelites, were spared. Those that didn't, the Egyptians, suffered. God passed over Egypt, and each family who didn't do as instructed, their front doors unanointed, paid the price. Here is where the destroying angel comes in. It was God who passed over Egypt, but as for who or what actually carried out the killing, there is more than one interpretation. It says, The Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into houses to smite you. One of the interpretations is that the destroyer is one of God's angels. Another is that the destroyer is a personal exertion of God's power, undelegated and not working through an intermediary. Regardless, the distinction is academic, virtually moot. God made the angels, the angels carry out the will of God, 
and it was God's will that Egypt be coerced into submission. So it's God either way, directly or indirectly. 2. The narrowly avoided destruction of Jerusalem In the Hebrew Bible, the narrowly avoided destruction of Jerusalem is twice recounted, once in 2 Samuel and once in 1 Chronicles. King David takes a census of the population he rules over, and disaster ensues. As for why taking a census was such an egregious offense, there is more than one interpretation that explains this. The simplest seems to be that it was a sacrilegious act because it demonstrated a lack of faith in God. David ordering the census was tantamount to quantifying his earthly power, but earthly power is utterly insignificant next to the power of God. So by quantifying his power, God's own power was implicitly called into question. Faith in God, in the context of the Bible, should preclude concern about the might one had at their disposal. For nothing, prowess in battle, the finest armaments, commanders of peerless martial genius, nor the most numerous army can measure up. David recognizes his folly shortly after the census is complete, but his recognition still comes too late. The damage is done, the fallout unavoidable. From his seer, through whom God spoke, David learns that he must choose one of three punishments. Seven years of famine, three months of fleeing before his enemies, or three days of plague. David chooses the plague option, throwing himself on the mercy of the Lord. Because of this, 70,000 people die across the kingdom. Fortunately, this is where the suffering ends, for it could have continued and become much worse. David's repentance was eventually met by divine mercy, bringing cessation to suffering. And this couldn't have come at a better time, for a second devastation was poised to befall the Israelites. At the final moment, God recalled his destroyer, who was ready to strike a second time. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough, now stay thine hand. So 70,000 people died, not great, given how avoidable the ordeal was, but the city was spared, not raised to rubble by awesome angelic power. 3. The Destruction of the Assyrian Army In the narrative that unfolds in 2 Kings chapter 19, Sennacherib is the king of the Assyrian Empire, and Hezekiah is the king of Judah, ruling from Jerusalem. Long before, the Israelites had ceased to be a people of one united nation. There was a schism following the death of King Solomon, resulting in two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was already a kingdom conquered, falling to the Assyrian Empire during the reign of Sargon II. Its people were displaced. Most were relocated to other regions in the empire to force assimilation, a practice imposed on the conquered to consolidate power by expunging culture. The idea was that a group severed from its identity was better absorbed. Sargon II was succeeded by his son Sennacherib, who continued to expand the Assyrian Empire. Judah, as the north before it, was invaded. 
city after city fell to the Assyrians, whose advance hitherto was inexorable. The situation was dire. Judah teetered on the precipice of ruin. Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, was besieged, seemingly poised to fall as had the capital of Israel decades earlier. Barely staving off defeat, cornered in the capital like a hunted beast in its cave, Hezekiah tore the clothes from his body, garbing himself with sackcloth, a demonstration of repentance and humility. The power he wielded as a mortal king had failed. Not only the power of God could bring deliverance from disaster. He dispatched his servants to find the prophet Isaiah, who imparted encouraging news, that the enemy army would be smote by God and that the king would be struck down in his own land. An angel of the Lord visited the Assyrian army in the dark of night, eliminating the threat. When the sun rose the next morning, the first light of day revealed an astonishing scene. Rather than a sea of soldiers, there was a decimated army. In but a single night, the invaders, once so mighty, were reduced to naught but a cautionary tale. The devastation of his forces impelled Sennacherib to retreat back to his own lands. Later, while praying to one of his false gods, two of his sons killed him with their swords. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.